0: Pergamum is the third church in the book of Revelation, and in this episode, we're going to look into the mystery of this church and the strange images that we find associated with it in the book of Revelation. The church in Pergamum is doing well to stand up to the obvious persecution that it faces, but it also has some sins hidden between its own life when it allows certain unchristian aspects to infiltrate the life of those there in its fellowship. So thank you for joining us. Welcome to Kingdom of the Lagos. We are a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure produced by clergy in the Church of the Nazarene. I'm Pastor Jay Dillon Proctor.
1: I'm Pastor Amanda Sparrow.
0: And I'm Pastor Anthony Allegria. And thank you for joining us. We hope that you're having a good day. And if you have any thoughts, questions, comments on any of the stuff that we've talked about, please send them to us. But also do remember, we are a live program, so this stuff is not scripted. It's most of us having conversation, though we are prepared. So have some grace and mercy with us. I know people are always wearing stuff out. But that being said, if we're not clear on something and you want to know more about it, reach out to us so we can make sure that we're being clear on stuff. But with that, let's talk about this church in Pergamum. Whenever we come to the book of Revelation, there's always an air of mystery. You always get that. People always have this air of mystery around the churches in this book. And certainly there is real meaning from history. There's a real man from history named John. He was one of the the 12. We know that these things really happened. There were real churches and these cities, they were all real. They faced real problems and they addressed real things. But yet we know that there's a reason that the book of Revelation is included in our scriptures. There's a lot of other historical documents which don't make it to the threshold of being biblical canon. So we know there's something about this which is very important. It tells us a deep message about who we are and how Christ seeks to redeem us. We come to this book and we know there's some reason that this has been included in our biblical canon. And today we're going to examine the third church of Revelation, the church in Pergamum. All right, so let's jump right into it. We always hear third church. There's always (laughs) interesting things I don't know if anyone proudly says we're third church, which Trinity was. Trinity used to be
1: up up until I think um, the 70s or it may have been into the 80s. It was known as Third Church of the Nazarene and it it, it changed its name to uh, Trinity.
0: Well, I would imagine that since this is just to the church in Pergamum and what we know of Christian history, there may just be a new church that is there. I mean, obviously, it's the churches in Revelation, so Christianity is not that old at this Mm. point. But it's not like it's a city where there was a work there and something left and came back, or you've got a whole (laughs) bunch of splits and schisms going on. You probably just have more of a unified Christian community to an extent. I mean, there's always some sort of small division. But you've got this church in Pergamum, and it is third because it's a third one addressed, not because there's a whole bunch of (laughs) things going on there, just to, to have some clear there. But we've got a map of these churches in Asia Minor. And so now that we've made our journey to Pergamum, we're gonna be learning a lot about what this place was and how it looked similar to things which go on in our word today. So I don't know if Anthony has pulled up that picture for us. All right, so you've seen that map and you see where Smyrna is, you see where some of these other, other places are. Today, we're gonna to be talking about a city that is similar to Smyrna and the fact that it has religious significance for the ancient Roman culture. Now, Smyrna was designated neo which means that it was a center for serving the gods of Rome. It had been officially given this designation, which meant when you came there, you would find all these temples to all these different things. Now, Pergamum, where we're at today, it also had a substantial religious significance with an official center for the imperial cult. Now, I know we use all this language and they all start to run together really quickly, but the imperial cult is a little different than just the gods of Rome. The imperial cult was looking towards the emperors. You might have someone, let's say, Constantine, you might have someone like Diocletian, you have all these these guys who were emperors of Rome, and from time to time, the Roman culture would look to one of their emperors, if they liked them, and say, well, you're kind of a demigod. And so that's something different from having a temple to Zeus, or Athena, or Aphrodite, or something like that, but they actually had an official cult there in ancient Rome that would try to worship the royal families and some of its members. Now, people, they would take these leaders, these emperors, and again, sometimes a family member, and they would take them to the status of being a demigod. And the Roman people, they would engage in rituals and sacrifices that were meant to worship them. Now, we know a lot about ancient Roman ritual sacrifices. They often include explicitly sinful things that are obviously not part of Christian orthodoxy, the the fornication and sacrifices and sort of things that go on there. But nonetheless, these would create problems in the church, and they would create problems because sometimes the church would look at it and say, you know, that looks kind of fun. <laughs> they would have some members that say, yeah, I'll go to church on one day of the week and then the next day of the week and they slip over into the temple and indulge in me a little sin. But sometimes it looked like there were people who were part of the imperial cult and they want to say Caesar is king, not Jesus is king. And there would be culture wars that happened that way. So you see sort of an internal battle and an external battle. Well, the city Pergamum, it has an interesting history. And after the time of Alexander the Great, the city became the capital of what is the Adelaide Dynasty. And if you don't know a lot about that, we're not really going to spend much time of it, but about 300 years before Christ, there's really some division going on in Rome, especially after Alexander the Great. There's, you know, when you don't leave a true successor, things kind of crop up with problems. But you get this city of Pergamum, it actually takes root as being a epicenter of culture. And in the region of Asia Minor, which is now Turkey, the city had a reputation for having luxurious commodities. It was near the sea. It had some good things going on for it. So it may have not been the powerful city of Rome, but it certainly was no podunk town. (laughs) And now, Amanda, you had discovered some interesting things about kind of their culture as well.
1: So so going uh, more about uh, Pergamum, Um, Pergamum actually in the Greek later, uh, that word gets translated into meaning parchment or evolves into the word parchment. And this was because, uh, very significantly, it had a library that was second only to the one that was in Alexandria. And uh, like Pastor Dylan mentioned, it had all these different seats and temples uh, in which gods were worshipped. And so all this is kind of coming together to form quite a fantastic city. In um, like I said, to have a... It, nowadays we take it take advantage of how books are so readily available i mean there's a there's a mckay's in nashville and there's all, all these libraries like the nashville branch uh probably has like a, or a dozen branches of places you can go and access information so so easily um you have the internet but but in those days to have a library in uh, such a large library just meant that there was not only just power politically but intellectually yeah. which would then transform into really a, a great authority to know that you know all these like hidden knowledge uh, kinds of things. Um, so yeah it was uh, Pergamum is this fantastical city um and, and it seems like this some of this may be a little redundant because we talked about Smyrna and then also the first church that's men- mentioned in Revelation uh, all of these cities are very powerful cities. Um, and which is probably why they were being uh, addressed um, because they, they had this kind of authority and this reputation and this ability to influence others. But we do see in, in Pergamum and each of the churches that their specific um, play within the world will affect how Christians uh, are impacted and how they think, in turn, Christians will impact the world around them. Sure.
0: and And I'm so glad you brought up this library because that tells you a lot about what the Un-Christian world looks like and how they're relating with the christian world that tells you a little bit about what they're like if you know people you know kind of library culture you know human history has has gone through a lot of different phases but there are people who like their book smarts and people who like book smarts can believe some really dumb things and do some really dumb things even though they're high iq people that doesn't mean they're moral people and then you also get people who are who are great they're just really interested in wisdom. They're they're looking at being really good people and their use of knowledge is wielded that way. So that tells you a little bit about the culture that we're looking at here in Pergamum. So we're gonna read the scripture now and from Revelation 2 verses 12 through 17, but one final thought before we do, we have to remember that John, who is the revelator of all this, he is receiving the revelation from Christ. He is the apostle to really the Asia Minor, what we would now call Turkey region. So again, this message regarding this church doesn't just come to him out of the blue like, hey, how do you care about this church you've never heard from the side of the, side of the continent? This is something which is near and dear to his heart. So he's hearing about a church he's very familiar with, he, he knows of this culture, he knows of these things, and now he's, he's getting a message about them. Brother Anthony, would you read for us from Revelation chapter two? And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him
2: who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you were living where Satan's throne is yet you were holding fast to my name and you did not deny your faith in me even in the days of Antipas my witness my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan lives but I have few things against you you have some here who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and practice fornication. So you also have become some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone. And on the white stone... Is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it.
0: All righty. Thank you, Brother Anthony, for reading that. Fascinating language there. Again, the book of Revelation is filled with so much mystery, and there are elements of it which we can't explain. But at the same time, there are real historical things we can look at. And even though we say they're real historical things, that doesn't take away the fact that there's a reason why they're included in the biblical canon. This stuff is telling us something very important, and we do well to pay attention to it. So what we're going to do now is we're going to look at some different themes that are here and we're not going to be able to cover everything that's in this text obviously but we're going to look at some things like satan's throne where satan lives what does it mean to have a white stone some questions like this who is antipas what's to do with balak balaam that sort of thing we're going to look at all this and have some interesting conversation here again always feel free to send us your thoughts questions and comments so let's take a quick look at satan's throne And this later ties in with the idea of one being killed in the place where Satan lives. So as we've already discussed before, the imperial cult was here in this city. And now the imperial cult was a lot of other places. And again, there's all sorts of Roman paganism all over the place. But my estimation from the language used in this text and just what the history looks like is that there's probably something particular going on with the culture of this church and the culture around that there's been some breaking points around the imperial cult. Sort of like if you're in Nashville, you're probably not going to be talking about the same things in the church like you might if you're in China, where people are doing things underground. There isn't a state-run church in China where they have the three-self church. And if you're in China, probably one of your regular conversations you have as a Christian is how do we interact with the three-self church, which is really run by the government as opposed to the house church. You know, that might be a big conversation for you because it's where your world is at. But if you're in Nashville, you're probably not going to be talking a lot about a government-run church because that's just coincidentally not something terribly significant to where you're at in that time. Now the imperial cult was something that was very significant to the culture of Pergamum. And when we ever hear about this throne of Satan, we can't definitively say this, but I would imagine that this is somehow connected to the fact that there is a mass movement of people here who look to the world around them and say, Caesar is king and not only is Caesar king, but Caesar is a godlike king. Our morality comes from whoever is sitting in the imperial throne. And when you have the church making this assertion that says Jesus is king. And Jesus is a king regardless whether you pagans over there like it or not. You're all gonna meet Jesus in the day of judgment. This mentality that the church has, there's going to be friction naturally between that, And this this idea that Caesar's not really God. You know this You are looking at the throne of Satan if you believe some human idol, whether it be a statue, an actual person, a deceased person. If you're looking at them to be God, you're going to be in idolatrous territory and you're going to have friction with orthodox Christianity who who knows and asserts who the real king is. Now, we get this language there of Antipas, who is a, a Christian who has died. And we can assume that he has died as a result of this persecution somehow. We don't get the specifics of that, but he's certainly a Christian who died from their their faith. Well, Pastor Amanda, what do you think about that? Do you think there's any possible connection between the imperial cult and their assertion that Caesar and his throne Mm -hmm. is God? Because, again, that's the whole purpose of the imperial cult. It's not just that we really like the emperor, but it's that the emperor is is godlike. Mm-hmm. You think there could be any connection with that in the well, yeah, throne of I, Satan?
1: And I think we, we've kind of distanced ourselves from this, not only in time and space, but also culture. Like for us, presidents kind of change every four or eight years. So we don't have the kind of uh, worship although uh, it's coming we're back we're coming back to that a yeah. little bit um but there's not this de- dedication really um there may be for 4 or 8 years but generally about you know another 8 years after president people left. forget completely yeah. yep they but walk this, away from it there's to, so so when we say like we can say Obama was president and now Trump is president and those are facts that do not contradict one another. However, in the ancient world there is only one king of kings, there is only one lord of lords. And so when you say Caesar is lord, that is it. There are no other options or or, um, uh, opinions on that fact. And so really to say Jesus is king, Jesus is lord, is then to say Caesar is not. And also, I think the, you're talking about the imperial cult. Again, that word me, meant a little different in that era. Uh, cult, uh, even it, in our Spanish, when we talk about our worship services, they say culto, which if you Google translate it, it will translate it as cult. Um, but really what that what cult originally means and why that then transforms into mo- a modern Spanish word is that cult was this idea of kind of liturgy, of worship, of um Tradition of of rituals, things you did. And so this was something, and again, we in modern times, we've kind of like cults or uh, liturgy happens on Sunday and then the rest of your life happens Monday through Saturday. We've segmented religion and and secular, we've over segmented it. But in that world, you couldn't, you can't segment that. The spiritual influences the natural and the natural influences the supernatural. And there's this ongoing. Uh, interaction with all these elements. And I say all that to say, obviously, if all these things are taken in context, there's going to be conflict yep. when you say Caesar's Lord versus Jesus' is Lord. And furthermore, you're going to have conflict where they're such, they've consumed life. The imperial cult has consumed life where you can't even go to the marketplace and buy meat without it probably having been sacrificed to either a god, whether that was Zeus or Apollo or somebody like that, or to. The, uh, to an emperor that has now been uh, uh, deified. And,
0: and to your point, just for a second, when you talk about the culture, even to the place of the marketplace, mm-hmm. you've got someone like Antipas. And as the scriptures say, it says, Antipas, my witness, and he who was killed among you where Satan lives. Whenever you go out into the marketplace and the whole world around you is dead, everything is, is so deeply webbed together. You've got... Caesar is not only lord, but he is eternally sort of a godlike character. Mm-hmm. And then you've got someone say, "No, Jesus is lord, and I'm not going to have any part of that." That can turn deadly quickly when mm-hmm. people don't have a when again the, the sin nature when it comes to manifest, it turns deadly quickly in this sort of situation. Right. And I would imagine that is what's happened here with Antipas.
1: And we see this. Uh, so last week we talked about the church of Smyrna, and it talked about you are poor and yet you're rich. and We talked about a little bit how probably what was happening in that day because the Christians were not, uh, whether it was burning the incense or signing a paper that said Caesar was Lord, uh, they were losing out on business deals. And so they were losing money. They were losing resources to sustain their livelihood and and, uh, their lives because they would not admit Uh, to the fact, or admit, or confess that Caesar was Lord. And so what we see then here in um, Pergamum is it's taken a step further, uh, where now actually people are being actively uh, killed. And, well, one person. But if we kind of also look historically, there were probably, this is the beginning of... um, Oh, I think it, Diocletian is his name, the emperor, and he is—he will come after. We often think of Nero as kind of that, that tyrannical yeah. villain against Krishna, but, but Diocletian will actually take it a step further. Yeah,
0: Diocletian's not on the stage yet, but okay. what we see happening historically is there's a shift happening in Roman culture. A lot of times we think of Rome persecuting early Christians. In the year where we're at now with someone like Antipas, generally what you have is mobs in the culture. Mm-hmm where it's not starting with an emperor, though you might have someone like Nero who who will do something like that. But for the most part, it's just some some people get together and they say, well, we hate those Christians. Right. And they make a mob and they might go find a judge. They might go find someone in the leg- legion. They might go somewhere in their, the military. They might go some governmental official, but the mob goes to the government and gets the government to mm-hmm. use its power, where later you will find the government initiating stuff saying well we just want to enforce this.
1: Well and this is to to kind of continue that thought, yeah, um, where eventually it will will go to that, um, oh you have it in the notes, I didn't look at that, sorry, but um, where we go finally into to John is writing in this revelation basically the, the theme of the whole entire book and really seeing this book as a book of worship um, more than a, the book of um, scary things that may happen in the future. Though John is confessing things are probably going to get worse, and we do see that. Oh, looking yeah, back, oh, absolutely. 2020, yeah. We see that yeah. it moves from this mom mentality to this uh, government wide or, or empire wide um, persecution. And, and this theme continues to carry that John is looking um, into the future, uh, and not the very distant future either. He's not looking 2,000 years ahead in, into uh, 2020.
0: He can see the signs of it yes, coming. Yes, he
1: knows it's coming, and he's warning yeah. his church. Now yep. is the time to start getting ready and yep. now is the time to be on your guard you've, you've faced you have endured this persecution, uh, but it will get worse, but also to um, continue on though the grand cosmic uh, future is saying that there is one who will come that's even victorious than even the yeah, worst things yeah. that are to absolutely come.
0: and and one does well to to observe <laughs> the the signs of the time and be keen on them because even though Antipas was not killed by someone like a an emperor who wants him gone that's on the horizon, the signs of that coming are there. So we look at a few more things here, and one of the things that we find is the interesting language of Balaam and mm-hmm. Balak. Now, if you're familiar with the Conjuring series, and I know we've we've looked at things like the Key of Solomon before on here, um if you don't know what the Key of Solomon is, it's kind of an old encyclopedia on demons. And worst case scenario, it's like six, seven hundred years old. Best case scenario in its favor, it's from the actual time of Solomon, David's son probably not that old, but still old, and it's right. definitely influenced a lot of stuff. But if you're familiar with the movie, The Conjuring, or The Conjuring series, there's a recurring villain, Valak, in it with a V, but a lot of people connect that with Balak, with a B, which is found in the Key of Solomon, if I'm not mistaken, and then you can tie that back to the Old Testament character of Balak, who is not a demon, but more or less just a another king or rival, leader out there in the world who is not Israelite, but is causing some problems. And Balaam is is one who is worth talking about. And I'll let Amanda talk okay. a little bit more well, on that area.
1: Balaam, uh, I think it's he's from Numbers, um, and he is a prophet. He, he's meant to be a prophet of, of Yahweh, of, of the Lord. Uh, the but God. he's not
0: an Israelite.
1: No, he's not. Uh, but he's supposed to be this mouthpiece. God right. is using him. And he kind of gives a bad prophecy. And if you can remember the story, this is uh, Balaam's donkey, uh, where he, the, the donkey is the one that recognizes the foolishness of the prophecy and, and is able then to convince Balaam to speak truthfully. But as this tradition, uh, the story is told over and over again, uh, when we get to kind of the first century where John is writing uh, to this church, and it, he is using this name, Balaam and and Balak, Balak however we want to pronounce him, as uh, there may or may not have been people at that time with those names, but basically they become these archetypes uh, for those who are leading the people of God astray, and not just leading as in like kind of casually, because uh, that's just kind of the culture around us has that influence. Um, but these are people who very intentionally, very actively, very aggressively are 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 seeping into uh, yeah. the people of God and, and directing them against this. So the readers of hearing this book or this uh, letter. Um, will we hear these names and they will connect them with this idea sure. of these leaders again that are going to come and and um, lead them astray.
0: Yeah and to the point of Balaam as you said he's kind of an a interesting character in the fact that he's not Israelite but he's supposed to be speaking on behalf of God so that's kind of an interesting dynamic there but then he kind of pulls some stunts and starts leading people astray and there's some bad things that go on with that um, Anthony, you you had something you wanted to throw in there on that.
2: Well, I'm not. Uh, hopefully, I'm not jumping ahead, or maybe this can take us into the next segment. But um, it's pretty well spelled out in the language here, also. So, uh, so you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, and previously, before that, it's um, you know, t- who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel, so that they would eat food sacrifice to idols and practice fornication. The problem is that the teachings of Balaam is to place stumbling blocks. And so how this applies to a Christian church is whenever people are putting stumbling blocks in front of Christians, which will lead them away from
0: Christ. And in a moment, we're going to get to some big stumbling blocks I see going on in the church today. So in case you were enjoying this program, I've got some <laughs> things in there that will make you mad at us for sure. But um, Anthony is doing his fist like this. I don't know if that means he's going to be mad and, and come at me after this. I don't know. I don't uh, know. I did the... The rushing hands. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Anthony's the one who knows one time. the time on this. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. So the Nicolaitans, they're Gnostics. They are fornicators. They indulge in all sorts of sins. Um, we don't know a lot about them, but their name is interesting. We mm-hmm. we talked about them more when we were looking at the church in Ephesus. But Amanda, I know you had done some more yeah. studying on them and how they relate to to Balaam a little bit.
1: Right. Here. And we we had I think we may have mentioned it um, in Ephesus, or at least we had talked about it in our, our uh, prep. But um, yeah, Nicolaitans probably has this. It literally would translate as um, the conqueror of the laity, and also it may it is has a close. It's a Greek name, but it has a close connection with the Hebrew name Balaam, and so there is there's kind of this all these layers of meaning of this person or this cult or this. Um, Tradition that is coming in, that is, and again, this language of conquer of ladies is fascinating. It's fascinating, because you yeah. have this contrast then, where where John will say, and to the conquerors I will give, and so there's these this conquering again. This is not a religion that you get to leave at church on sunday so you can go live your life monday well, through saturday it, it even, it's so integrated in your life yeah, yeah. that there is you can only be conquered by one thing and you can only conquer one thing or there into so the world yeah, it's can only, be conquered yeah by right thing. and
0: one of the things you find fascinating about this is the conquering of the laity mm-hmm. i meet so many people who they say well i'm not in church because i saw something bad happen in church and church is a bunch of hypocrites nowhere in scripture are we told that the church is going to be a place where there is no persecution. Hmm. Now, it is sinful when persecution happens within the church. But one of the expectations we get from Scripture is that wicked things come to prey on things which are righteous. And the church is not exempt from that. Um, Jesus, the greatest people who were opposing him were people in the house of Israel. I can't say that enough times. When you get this name, the Nicolaitans, those who are conquering the laity, they are preying on the sheep within the church. There are mm-hmm. people who come in as sheep, but they're really wolves. Or maybe they used to be sheep, and now they're wolves. And they come to pray and conquer the laity.
1: Yeah. And this, this
0: happens. It's sinful.
1: Mm-hmm. It's
0: wicked. But our expectation shouldn't be, well, I can't be at the church because i a hypocrite. What we need to do is say, no, we're going to endure and get this stuff out.
1: Right, And this is where we're going to see, again, the contrast is happening in this letter where... The church in Pergamum is able to look and point at the death of one of their fellow believers and say, That is persecution, that is wrong, we're yep. going to stand up against it. But they're going to fail to stand up against those more subtle things that really come within their yeah. own people like you're saying. And so this is where John is urging them and this is he's using such strong and maybe even harsh language against them uh, that may scare us a little bit, but that's what John's supposed to is really his intent is like this is really dangerous stuff. This is not something like oh, it's like a little bad thing. This is really serious and it needs to be taken seriously because people will come, and like you said, even within us, even the people we trust. And that doesn't yeah, mean we yeah. abandon our faith. It means we're supposed to hold fast even sure, harder. Sure, and
0: the expectation is is be prepared for the stuff because it's coming. It's wicked. It's sinful. It is not part of the design of the church. That's not right. what I'm saying here. It is against the design of the church, but this sort of persecution, which is sinful, is, go- is something you should be prepared for. Anthony?
2: I keep on uh, getting put to wait until it's no longer relevant, but <laughs> um, I just wanted to say that the and i'm going to say this plurally because i'm referring to all the johannine literature but the revelations given to john in our bible are very very uh just rich in symbolism and uh connections in the wording and all that sort of stuff it's really beautiful work and the johannine literature has pretty much been known across christian history to be among the most philosophical and um you know very very well written and yeah. so uh, a lot of these connections are not just like out of the air. It's very, mm-hmm. very common in the writing of John to uh, make sorts these sorts of uh, connections in what he was revealed. So,
0: Sure. Yeah. And so what we're going to do now is I wanted to get into the times where we see people today eating food sacrificed mm-hmm. to idols <laughs> or consecrated for idols. We're going to get to that, but you're going to have to hold to the end of the program. We're limited on our time. So I'm gonna talk about the white stone first. And we don't really have, it. there's the hidden manna, you can kind of see there's this logic that you find throughout the New Testament where those who try to, to save their life, they will lose it. Those who give their life over to Christ, they they lose their life for the name of Jesus, they will find it. This is kind of tying into that too with the hidden manna, that logic. But the white stone is one which is a little bit harder to, to find some answers for. But we know this about ancient Roman culture. A lot of times people were taken and forced to be gladiators. The gladiators you see, Hollywood kind of makes it seem a little bit more glamorous. Um, they're usually slaves or people that are captured. They're not really happy about this. I um, mean, they did this with men and women. Um, they were taken, they would throw them in there. The Diary of, of St. Perpetual, one of my, my favorite reads from the ancient church, you find this young lady who's a young mother forced to be a gladiator and dies. Um, so this is the way that they killed them. Um, whenever people lasted for a while as gladiators, and... Rome decided, well, we're going to grant you retirement. We'll free you from this. you will liberate you. They would give them a white stone as sort of a, a sign of, it's kind of a bit of a trophy that says you're you're free now. You're innocent. You're done with this. Um, you may have been a slave or captive, whatever, before, but you're now free.
2: Which What a symbolism for uh, those who are being persecuted. I don't know necessarily that there were many Christians at this specific point in time which were made to be gladiators, but that will happen yeah, it's later coming. on. and it's so. Coming. There is the ultimate redemption in uh, the end times in which they'll be liberated from that slavery. It's pretty awesome. And
0: and so some other places that white stones are used in ancient Rome, it's a symbol of friendship. um, Though to what degree, you know, we have, they have mosaics. I don't know how many people in ancient Rome were going around saying, oh, here, I I really enjoyed company with you today, Anthony, Amanda, have a white stone. I don't (laughs) know how often that happened. A (laughs) friendship bracelet. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But then another thing that was used for is a symbol of victory, in something like the Olympic Games. Some people mm-hmm. come out of that victorious. They're they're great athletes. They get a white stone kind of as a trophy. So the white stone has been used in that way in ancient Rome quite a bit. Hmm.
2: Symbol of victory,
0: redemption, yep. uh, friendship. That's... It's almost like it was purposeful. <laughs> it's almost like it was purposeful in this book, yes. Some may say, some may say. Um, mm-hmm. But now let's get to something a little saucier. You've endured with us. Um, you have said this bad version of the seven hundred club, we have endured their their patient dialogue. Endurance. Yes, patient endurance. And now you have all the things to be mad at. Because where do we see people? And when I say people I mean Christians, those in the church eating food sacrificed to idols. Mm-hmm. I've got a few places I'm gonna point this out. This list is not all the places I see it, but they're just a few that I'm gonna bring up. So the first place I see it happening is one that's really going to really get people uh, mad. Something has happened in the church where, well, before I get to it, let me back up for a second. When I say food sacrificed to idol, what does that practically mean down to earth? Do we mean that somebody has some bale, you know, cookies in here that we're eating? No, that's not what I mean. What I mean when I say this is something that has specifically been set aside for the purpose of serving a particular belief system. So it is designed or it's been repurposed or refashioned so that it can serve a particular belief system. So what I mean when I talk about this in the church today, when do we use a tool, an idea, a way of speaking that has been designed for another belief system, and we try to use it in the church and it ends up tearing the church apart? Anthony, you had something you wanted to say on this before I get into this list? I was, I was just going to guess. I thought you were
2: asking a question that time. Oh, okay. <laughs> you... But I was, I was going to say maybe a stumbling block or something like that Okay, nature. so these are, these are, all, these are
0: all stumbling blocks because we, we asyncretize with the world around us, we allow it in. Well, I suppose
2: stumbling blocks would include a lot more though too. So this they is do. a very they, specific it's a form, subset yeah, of stumbling it's a, blocks.
0: Yeah, it's a specific set of stumbling blocks. So number one is how we do worship and how we do music. Also, I, I know the pitchforks are coming. Um, please send them to 6186 Eaton, Eaton's Creek Road. Something has happened in the last century where we have allowed commercial music to be confused with worship music. And this, is not one that's immediately obvious. And that's one of the things which goes on with Pergamum. They're good at defeating the obvious, but not the not so obvious. Can one worship God outside of church? Yes, and I think people should do that. But that doesn't take the place of the worship service. Um, We have allowed what is a commercial industry, which is fine. There needs to be commercial industries in our world. That's fine. People can make money, that's fine. If people wanna sing songs um, that are Christian songs and make money, do it, fine. But something weird has happened where we have allowed songs that were designed to be used for making money to be used for making money on top of the church's desire to worship and the church's instruction to worship, like Pastor Amanda, if you give a a message, say you're teaching on revelation or anything, <laughs> do you charge people royalties if they use one of your ideas again? Well
1: well no, and also because it's really hard to have an idea that if not read in. Someone else hasn't already come up with, sure, which sure. is based on something else, and and so um, in in uh, intellectual property is very complicated to try to even do that. Even if I wanted to, and I'm sure people have tried to do that. Yeah, but, but
0: something rubs me wrong. Yeah, about the way trying to force and even you're not even playing a recording. You have to pay the CCOI fee, even if your own worship team's doing it. You've modified it. Though sometimes they get mad about you, you modifying. Modify yeah, you're not supposed it, yeah. to. And that tells me. This stuff doesn't belong in the church service if it's not meant for Christian worship and it's not something meant for the church to really use. Right. And I we- think
1: I think there's a difference between paying someone their due where they have worked. They, you know, yep. just like we pay pastors to pastor, I think we, we pay artists to, to be artists. Um, but, yeah, I think what you're saying, though, is we, we have – We've twisted it. Yeah. And also, I think. Something's
0: got out of sync.
1: Out of sync. And I think to your point, where it's something that was created for a specific purpose is twisted for another purpose. Yes. Yes. Worship starts with the nature of God. A Sunday service or whenever you have your worship service, the the, the cult of Christendom, the the, the uh, liturgy of Christendom, the practice of Christendom is to educate us so that we may be transformed by God's grace more and more into the image of God. And then we can leave that service, that cult, that liturgy, and go out into our world and live it out. However, something has happened where we don't start with the nature of God, but we start with the mediums of really human uh. Striving. And so, yes, I, I think though, and, and commercial music is such an easy one to point out because I think it's funny how we can say it and we can point our finger at it and we're like, there's wrong, something wrong here, but we don't know what to do with it. Yeah,
0: and I think the shortest way I can say what's wrong with it is if you're wanting something to be part of a Christian worship service and you're hoping that churches around will find it useful and they're compelled to use it, so like using scripture or something mm-hmm. like that, you can, you should not be expecting to make continual money off of it and royalty every time they use it. I mean, I can see selling a song initially to, say, a publisher or something like that, but the whole idea with royalties and stuff, and even the motives behind why things are made. Like, things that are made commercially, they're not meant to be the end-all, be-all song because they want you to buy the next album. And that shouldn't be the logic we have when we're trying to make something to give glory to God on a weekly basis. Well, and
1: I think also I was talking to uh, Anthony about this because there was a, a flyer in, in your mail about winter jam, and there is nothing wrong with winter jam. No, it's... There's nothing nope. wrong with concerts. But nope. when we make that the thing that forms our lives, we make that the liturgy. We make yep. that the practice that, and that forms And if you make us, something then... which
0: is not trying to be theological in the sense that it's trying to be... It's trying to be theological, but it's not trying to be definitively doctrinal. They're not trying to really make sure they're really close to Christian doctrine and things like that. It's well, more well,
1: formational by accident than with any kind of yeah. great... It, it, and it's incomplete. It is incomplete. Well,
2: also, we should try to remember that, like, to glorify God is not, I guess, uh, the exact same thing as... Expressing emotions about God. Yeah. And those are those are not the same thing. Um Mm -hmm. to glorify God is to reveal his nature, which might be emotional. It might not be in some situations. But either way, um it's not limited to just emotions and a lot of times again, winter jam, really fun, all that stuff. A lot of people get a lot of good things from God out of that. Yeah. But um a lot of times those concerts are specifically oriented towards drawing out as much emotional experience as they can, which is not evil. It's just, it's not. It's not all the same that thing is as to a, worship. a
0: worship service. Yes. And that's, not that's the distinction which needs to be made. We have, al- we have allowed the, the understanding of a worship service to be muddied. So mm-hmm. we'll come back to that one. And I'll have to be quick through this others because not everyone listening to this is mad or maybe they've all left. Who knows? <laughs> so the next one is, this is a big one conversations about people's identity that do not start with and do not end with the only identity having that is worth mentioning is that which is found in Christ Jesus. So a lot of people that talk about identity and stuff, and there is a a time and place for those rational conversations. But if they do not start and end with the only one that matters is your relationship with Christ Jesus. That is eating the fruit that is made to pull people away from Christianity and to cause division and cause suffering. So that that's one that's out there. Um, so the church needs to to be done with that and move on. There's a lot of people that, that get into this. And up in Canada, there was the whole deal with the United Church of Canada. They had the atheist pastor come in. She explicitly denies the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the church says, in, you know, we're a diverse church and we accept a wide range of theologies. It's obvious they are worshiping something other than Christ Jesus there. And because they do not start with and stop with the premise that the Christian identity is centered around Christ Jesus and that's the only one worth having, they're okay with that. And it's a dangerous, dangerous pathway. All right, so the next one I've got that the church has done is embracing this notion of your truth and abandoning the idea that there is objective truth. Now the church has really dropped the ball on this one. Historically, the things like the enlightenment, modern sciences, you don't have any of them without Christianity and the logic that it produced. And this basic notion that you as an individual, you can think, You can make decisions for yourself. You as an individual are worth entering into the public debate and a leader in your civilization should listen to what you have to say as a peasant. All of these things are built off of the premise that when Christ Jesus comes to you, you as an individual, you get to make a decision. If you're a Samaritan woman at a well, you can make a decision about receiving the gift of Christ. If you're someone about to be stoned, you are worth making a decision. If you're a blind man, your heart is worth having a metanoia and changing. It's no longer about what tribe you're from. It's no longer about how wealthy you are or anything like that. But this idea that there is objective truth and there's objective value in the world, Mm -hmm. the idea that you can actually go out there and you can learn, it's like say, how the forces of, of weather work, how does wind work? All of these are built off of the idea from Christianity that there is objective truth and all people are subject to the objective truth that is out there. I mean, Christ is the one who comes and says, I am truth, capital T. When we see this, Western civilization is heavily influenced by this, um, but also it's much older than what we have in modern Western civilization, the enlightenment, all of these movements. They're they're connected somewhat with the old Greco-Roman things, but Christianity really comes along and takes them to their next level. And as the church, somehow we have dropped the ball on this. So that's another thing. Whenever we we have this notion of live your truth, you know, Oprah gets out there and says, you know, your truth, people, they scream, they love it. That's not Christian Orthodoxy. Um, The next one I've got, and for time purposes, I've got to go through this one. This one really makes me mad. Whenever we have people that use, and this is more of a scholarly thing. Whenever you open a book that's historical, I actually opened up a commentary today, the New Interpreter's Bible, Um, it's dictionary set. And they had people using the language of BCE and CE. And that means before common era and common era, And they're meant to replace before Christ in Anno Domini, which means the year of our Lord. And that could not be more eating the fruit sacrificed to another God than anything. If you're a Christian and you use the language of BCE to describe time in CE, somebody needs to come to you and say, get out, either repent or get out, because (laughs) you have allowed fruit. You have allowed a tool to seep into your brain that is trying to take Jesus out of time. It's this idea that it's from the, the secular world trying to say, oh, there are some people who believe in Christ and he may have existed, which is ludicrous. Like the, from the historical standpoint, Jesus definitively existed. And whether or not Jesus rose from the dead or not has nothing to do with how people feel about it. It is a definitive thing. Christianity believes in objective truth. And for those in the church who would say, well, common era and before common era and take Christ out of it, no. Get out. That is out, out, out. Big out, no. Anthony.
2: Okay, so I've got two, but before I say my two, I just want to say, you know, for instance, um, Jesus says that it's not the food that you eat that corrupts you or what goes into your mouth that corrupts you, but what comes out of your mouth that corrupts you because that shows what the heart is. Um, That is what matters. That being said, these are two that I can think of while Dylan was talking about his. Um, The first one is church institutions or Christian institutions rather Regularly accepting money from the government, and I say that because whenever you accept money from the government, you also have to accept the government's. Influence. You
0: know what? There's an actual interesting thing about this in India, that came out, and it was in Christianity Today, where there were a bunch of Christian missionaries who signed a form saying they would not do anything regarding the gospel of Christ Jesus to receive the money from some uh, as a non-government organization, so an NGO. But in India, they had to sign this in order to work. And so basically, they say, we're missionaries, but we're not going to do any mission work. Hmm. Now, I understand that sometimes you go to a creative access area and what you do in public and what you do in private, you have to do those things differently. So I don't know if that's a case like that there. But I also know of cases here in the Nashville area where people have wanted to be a 501c3 and have said, we're not going to do anything with the gospel, even though it's taken place in churches. Yep. And yes, that um, would be an, an example that's, of that.
2: I think, for instance, the uh, Salvation Army had to deny... I know they get some money, and I'm not trying to throw them under the bus because, like I said, it's what comes out of the heart that matters more than what goes into the mouth. But um, I think the Salvation Army had to deny themselves a bunch of subsidies from the government because they didn't want to deal with the furthering of the government's influence. And whatever it was, it must have have crossed the line for them for them to deny the resources, um, which they're using to help people anyways. But... um, and then, so the Salvation Army said no to this. As far as I know, I mean, they haven't said absolute no, as in I, I think no they, government. From money, what I know of the
0: Salvation Army, I think they did say no to eating the the fruit sacrificed to another. Oh, uh,
2: they. I, I think there's a line that they didn't cross. I don't know yeah. what it is exactly, but I'm just using them as an example. I mean, I think my university does it too, and there's certain lines that I mm-hmm. think well, they we not have mistaken, not yet crossed.
0: Quebec is also the Salvation Army's mm-hmm. school, so. Yeah.
1: But what he's saying to his point is, is Trevecca has refused some government aid because in order to accept that government aid, they would have to accept things that um, they feel are, are are against their principles and understanding so of the So if we're
0: gospel. we're part of, say we're like John here, and we're receiving this revelation, this is a good thing on their yes, behalf. Yes, this is a good, this thing. Is a good we're, thing. We're, in we're saying okay, that, okay, that yeah. the Salvation Army Making and Trevecca sure have
1: done a good thing. Yes.
0: Well,
2: enough complimenting Trevecca. So I'm just playing. Um, my next one is oh gosh i had it a minute ago it's church institution oh yes there's a lot that you can find in media um and you know we talked about music earlier i think in some sense consuming a lot of media that was that glorifies things that are not godly i mean i'm not i'm being very loose in my terminology here. i'm not even saying it directly has to glorify god but at least has to glorify the way of life um and be consistent with Christian values there are some things some music some movies that glorify evil things and make those evil things out to be the good and i think consumption of that in many ways can be like eating well, the the as you say it's meat, it's what comes out of the
0: mouth it's not reading an encyclopedia that says bc and bce or ce and bce it's when you are a christian scholar and you're going to use C.E. and B.C. that you you've kind of done well, that well,
1: and I think again these are just indicators. These are uh, mediums that that are re- though that do reveal kind of a primary expression. So I, I'm not going to question your Christianity if you use B.C.E. or C.E. But there is a level of trying to figure out what it is. is the syncretism is it simply yeah, yeah. using academic language that's considered appropriate? I, I don't know, but regardless of the thing. Whatever that medium is. And again, going back because Paul seems a little bit more lenient on this subject of food or meat that's sacrificed to idols. He allows for a little bit more room. Versus John, when he's writing, is very, very strong against this. And I think it's because John recognizes the context of the specific church of of Pergamum is that you you cannot let evil have even an inch in your life. You cannot even have the appearance, or, or just crack the door a little bit for evil to come in. Sure, that you have to call it what it is, and so this is what we're saying. With all these examples we're using, um, we're not saying uh, you kind of get thrown out of the church for listening to secular music, or even worship music, or commercial worship Christian music is bad. Which I think is
0: good to, for people to do within but the week, but we have to we have to, the to Yeah, of the we have to service. differentiate yeah. what
1: they are and what their purpose is and sure. what is forming us as pe- as the people of God. Yep. And so that's what we're trying to express, just to add a little clarification. In case, it, if you want to listen, if you want to send your pitchforks to us, send them, but uh, send them legitimately. Don't get mad at us for things that are that are silly.
0: And, and to your point about the CEBC thing, it's not obvious the motive why people do that. And mm-hmm. that's the problem with the church here in Pergamum. And Amanda, I know you read a really good closing thought on the takeaway from this, and I'll let you share that with others, and we'll end there.
1: <laughs> well, um, we see in this church, and again, there's a lot of contrast. Uh, John uses specific language. He changes the name of how he references Jesus and what the reward is going to be. And it all has something to do um, with what is they are facing. And so John is warning this church in per- Pergamum, uh, you are holding fast against the, the, the obvious persecution, but they were beguiled by something that happened within. And so we are called to as Christians to be um, considerate, to be discerning, and to strive towards the goal that Christ has set us free, Christ has made us victorious, and we can conquer whatever this world throws at us.
0: Amen. Thank you for joining us. We are Kingdom of the Lagos. Download our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, CastBox, and more. Follow us on Facebook. Subscribe to our channel on YouTube. Reach out to us. If you'd like to donate monetarily, you can do it at patreon.com slash Kingdom of the Lagos. Make sure you're part of a local Christian fellowship. And with that, God love you and have a blessed day. Thank mm-hmm. you.